Welcome to the Inquiry Mind Podcast with me, Stanley Goldberg. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Edith Hall, who's a professor in the Classics Department at King's College London. She specializes in ancient Greek literature and also teaches ancient Greek and Roman history, society, and thought. She has published 30 books, broadcast frequently on radio and television, works as a consultant with professional theaters, lectures all over the world, and publishes widely in academic and mainstream journals and newspapers. Her most recent book, Aristotle's Way, How Ancient Wisdom Can Change Your Life, is central to our discussion today, and I highly recommend it. As always, thank you for your ongoing support of the Inquiring Mind podcast, so please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please also follow us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Edith Hall. Edith Hall, welcome to the Inquire Mind podcast. I'm delighted to be here with you. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure, obviously. Uh, but before we get into your book and everything you write about in there, uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about your career as a professor, how you came to that career and what your and how you came to your interests in classics? Mm. Okay, so I was born in 1959. I was a child in the 60s. Um, we were my family was very educated. My father was actually a vicar in the Church of England, but extremely poor. Um, you know, there was no money at all, but there was quite high level conversation going on. And when I was about eight, uh, I found this copy of a book lying around on this really weird script alphabet. You know, my kids are really fascinated by strange writings. And I asked my father what it was. And he said, that, my dear, is the gospel according to St. John would you like to learn New Testament Greek? So <laughs> I said, okay. And he, sure enough, taught me the alphabet in Greek. And I remember vividly that the first sentence of uh, Gospel according to St. John says, in the beginning was the word. And I, you know, and uh, I just got more and more intrigued by this idea that there was this world 2000 years ago with these beautiful languages. So I was fortunate enough because we were really broke to get scholarships because in Britain you can't get things like classical education at all in the state system uh, but I got a scholarship to a grammar school and, and and so got allowed to do these languages and I wasn't that keen on Latin to be honest I just loved everything about the Greeks <laughs> went to Oxford to study it and although I didn't go straight into an academic career I tried to be a businesswoman didn't manage very well by about 26, 27, I realised that I just needed to be an academic. I, I, I needed to go and read more Aristotle and more Greek tragedy. Um, and I've since, I got my first big job at 31, worked at Oxford, Cambridge, London University, Durham University. Uh, and I'm currently professor of classics at King's College London. Mm. And why not business? What, what didn't work out on that front? I was incredibly bored. Uh, maybe I was just in the wrong business. Um, it was shipping, actually. And um, 
there are some quite interesting aspects of shipping and I happen to speak modern Greek. So I'd occasionally be sent off to like buy a tugboat <laughs> in or something. But um, I, I don't sit well with profit making commercial enterprises. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't sit easily on me. I'm, I'm not excited by it. Mm. So if I hadn't gone back into academia, I think I would have become some kind of social worker or charity worker or um, something that, where the products were far more to do with social welfare uh, than, than financial business. That doesn't mean that I'm at all knocking uh, people who want to work in those businesses, but it did nothing whatsoever for me. Are you not a maybe a more client phase? Do you like the research aspect of, for example, writing your book or do you... Uh, prefer to be interacting with people on a day-to-day -day oh, basis? I do both. Um, academia consists of three discrete types of uh, work, teaching, research, and administration. So I love teaching. I love research. I'm the world's worst administrator. I cannot do it. Otherwise, I'd be a dean by now or something. <laughs> I, I, I have stuck very closely to... Uh, teaching uh, grad, uh, students at all levels. And I, I've taught adults a lot as well as, uh, you know, I, I've done a lot of work for things like the British Workers Educational Association, which is for people who are up to their 70s and 80s uh, and undergraduates. I absolutely love it. And I find it, I can't do good research without it, the teaching feeding into it because I think the discipline, which is what this represents, I think the discipline, which is what this book very much represents, of explaining complicated ideas or trying to put them in a digestible and accessible way is incredibly good. It actually improves your research massively. So I see it as a big sort of dialogue between being able to explain an Aristotelian idea even to a five-year-old, right, and um, how I write. And, and I'm very, very anxious that the ideas that have too often sequestered in the ivory tower. Uh, you know, Aristotle is not an author who a lot of men in the street, you know, tend to know much about. And, and, and I think my one great talent you know, is that bridge between complicated academic ideas and uh, fairly ordinary colloquial uh, conversation. So I set it as little challenges every day. I took to my hairdresser last week about the difference between uh, committing crimes by omission and by commission. And of course she could get it. Of course she could get it if explained in a certain kind of way that you could do even more damage by turning a blind eye than by actually committing a crime. We all know that intuitively. Uh, she was just really, really pleased to be told that actually, you know, some great Greek philosopher had written pages and pages about that. So, um, that, that's my mission. That's why I'm on the planet, I think. Um, and I'm really delighted that you've actually asked if, if you could tell more to your wide uh, American listenership um, about these ideas. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I feel like a lot of the, maybe not the academics that I've encountered, but when I was in school, academics at large, and no knock on academics, but... Uh, uh, are they have a, a talent for making simple ideas very complicated? Yeah, 
uh, because I'm, I was an economics and a history major, but in yeah. economics in particular, they had a, a skill at making, for example, microeconomics, which is very intuitive <laughs> once you like kind of break it down. Yeah. Making it ex- very, very complicated for the average person. And I would, there, I would is a, just, there is a technical term for that. There is actual technical term for that rhetoric, which is obscurantism, right? Uh-huh. And that is deliberately studied uh, clouding of what is actually quite clear or could be quite clear. There are various reasons why it can be valuable for academics to do that. Uh, one is to get sort of respect and admiration. People think if I can't understand them, they must be incredibly intelligent. Another is that if commonsensical kinds of ideas about economics or ethics get too well understood in society, people are going to see through the power structures and it'll change the way they vote. I mean, you know, that sort of education has serious political consequences. I'm not saying that most academics do that deliberately, but that they're plugged into a system which has got it's an intellectual class system, not mm. a social class system, intellectual class system, which relies on most of the people most of the time not really understanding what's going on. And do you and, think your your upbringing in any way kind of uh, shaped how what your mission is in life, as you just mentioned? Because it seems to me that if you grew up in a very wealthy family and went to these schools and then taught a certain way, right. you're more rigid and you don't want people maybe... Uh, on the, you know, uh, lower in the totem pole to know these ideas, but because you were raised a certain way, you realized that this is something you wanted to do and share your knowledge with the with people. Well, you know what, Stanley, I think you have a great future ahead as an interviewer because that's a, an incredibly astute question, especially because you know I don't get on with my father. He's still alive. He's ninety three. He's he's a very uh, doctrinaire Christian, Protestant Christian. Um, of course, I'm in touch with him, but, you know, the, there's not a lot of real affection lost between us because it was such a strict upbringing. But every Sunday as a child, I would see him in the pulpit giving actually hair-raisingly brilliant, simple lectures to the congregation, explaining very complicated theological ideas, uh, reducing really complicated chapters in the Bible to quite a simple moral message about how people should be behaving this week. Or, and so I have this example, and, and the fact that I used very use the word mission, I have a, a mission on the planet, so I'm a, an atheist. Um, I stopped believing in, in his God when I was 13 years old. But the, the idea that if you've got a brain, you should be putting it to the service of universal well-being. I have to say, thank you, Dad. <laughs> and I have said that to him. Um, that there was a great example. Um, and he kept his sermons incredibly short, where other people would ramble on, miserably dull for an hour. There, there were these 10 minute, really quite thrilling, not read out from a script, you know, pre- oral presentations. So although I don't agree with some of the content, obviously, I, I'm, I'm an Aristotelian ethicist, not a Christian ethicist, uh, that set me a real example. The other thing I remember more vividly than anything, and I was funny enough just remembering about this earlier today, because one of my daughters asked, what did I remember from the 60s? Because I was born in 1959, and she's writing some essay at university about the 60s. And the very first thing that entered my mind 
was the 1968 Olympics when the uh, two African-American US sprinters punched the air mm-hmm. on, on the podium because this caused this extraordinary row between my parents. <laughs> I remember watching this on TV and my mother kept saying sport is in a completely inappropriate place for that kind of thing. And my father was saying, yes, but if you knew what it was like to be an African-American, right? In the 60s, yeah. Yeah. So, but, so I was being brought up with those arguments going on and learning mm. a lot from them. And my father was often right, especially on race. Never gender, never sexuality, but um, he always got it right. Mm. Sorry. Uh, so you put your finger on a very important reason why I became interested in moral philosophy. That's that's a that's an interesting way to grow up because I feel like in some ways I'm the same way. Um, n- neither of my parents are, are very like pious people. Uh, but they presumably, are they're, presumably they're Jewish from your name. Well, my dad is. Uh, yeah. my mom is. Oh, a not poor, your mom. My mom is technically, technically, uh, Christian Orthodox. Is she? Uh, yeah. So my dad is, uh, I guess, an apostate. <laughs> but uh, he he kind of. So you're uh, not Jewish because Jewish comes from the mother, yeah. Well, again, yes, technically, yeah, uh, but biologically, yes, I I, I consider myself uh, Jewish. Uh, more than I am Orthodox, for right. sure. Uh, my my mom is an atheist as well. Uh, they grew up in the Soviet Union, so did they? That was the way of the world. That must uh, have been tough. <laughs> it was, but my yeah, but my dad, you know, he he he's a Jewish man. But again, I grew up in a household where there were these conversations going on and for example even even politically my mom is kind of apolitical until recently and then my dad was you know uh i guess traditionally republican and my brother was a more to the left so he was a democrat in some ways and i grew up hearing all of this and my brother's 10 years older than i am and it was actually healthy because it is whenever i went to uh college and i never and, and i met people with different viewpoints i never it was never foreign to me no. uh, because I'm like, well, you know, Republicans aren't bad people. Democrats aren't bad people. No. Like my brother is a good guy and my dad is a good guy. And exactly. it's just, they disagree on something. So I think it's a, it's a pretty good way to grow up, you know? I agree. But in your experience, what, what led, and I know you outlined a little bit in your introduction of your book, but uh, why did you, stop believing in God. And was that the main reason that you had the disagreement with your father? Uh, yes. I mean, they're very closely related because it, it, he was no feminist. It was a very patriarchal household in, in, in a very traditional Christian way. But, and um, I felt not taken seriously uh, and my ideas and, and my brothers got listened to where I wasn't and, and, and you know there were, there were structural problems about being a little girl in that household definitely but I don't know why I stopped believing that is unbelievably difficult to answer I remember being 13 years old and listening to some sermon where the bishop we'd actually got it was a distinguished bishop it wasn't just your ordinary preacher man um was talking about how evil the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus were. I, re- I remember the moment very, very clearly. And me thinking, well, so these are working class boys in the Roman Empire who may have had no 
choices about what kind of profession they go into, who told by their commanding officer that this is a reprobate criminal. <laughs> sort of like, could, could you give them a break? <laughs> could mm-hmm. we understand, not just dismiss them as, you know, I remember this sort of, can we try and reconstruct how these probably very young boys are just carrying out orders and can we be a bit more sympathetic? But I had previous to that already had huge problems with miracles. <laughs> I, I have a naturally quite scientific brain and the faith, the leap of faith that is required in radical Protestantism, it is faith is everything, right? That you just have to reject everything that your senses and your brain are telling you and, uh, and just make this move beyond. I, I just can't do it. And I still can't do it. I want scientific cooperation for everything. And I think it's temperament as much as, you know, I, th- I think this is inborn. Three of my four, of my, I, I'm one of four, and the other three all go to church. Um, what this did, though, was deprived me of a moral framework. And I, I do lay this out in the book. So from 13 to about 22, I was miserably unhappy because I had no rule book anymore. And the capitalist system we live under seemed to me to be saying nice guys finish last and that you should be out there beating everybody up to make your biggest profits. And so I felt this fundamental contradiction between uh, the sort of morality we're all told to be nice to people and be kind to people and the actual economic reality of, of society. So I decided about 13, 14, there was no point in trying to be a good person. I, I could see no, no, what was in it for me. If there was no providential deity who was going to deprive me of an afterlife, if, as we all know, lots of good people end their lives in absolutely tragic circumstances, lots of bad people end their lives completely unpunished, I thought, I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to, you know, do everything I can to, to, to make myself uh, rich and happy and of course I was utterly miserable <laughs> I was completely miserable and it wasn't uh, and I, I took drugs and I drank and I partied and I did all the other things that kids did I was at university late 70s early 80s pre-AIDS you know and uh, it wasn't till I was 22 and I started reading Aristotle on the syllabus at Oxford University that I was so completely blown away by this totally rational, non-spiritual, uh, scientific analysis of the relationship between happiness and virtue, which is what it comes down to do, is you will feel much better and happier if you try to do the right thing by everybody. That's Aristotle in a nutshell. I was so blown away by the logic of it that I decided to try, you know, start trying to do it and within three or four years, I was infinitely happier. Other people were treating me far better because I was treating them far better. Um, and I felt I'd got a sort of purpose and shape to my life, which had been missing ever since I lost my faith. Mm. So I wouldn't call it a religion substitute. I would call it a religious, an alternative to a morality derived from a religion. You know, it's not doctrine. It's a morality that you build up within yourself, you nurture within yourself so that you try to train yourself as a moral agent. 
with the big happy plum being that you will probably be a lot happier on your deathbed if you do that than if you go around treating everybody really badly. Yeah, and and uh, I think I think the one thing that strikes me about what you just said is there is this framework that you kind of live your life by now, but uh, there is no uh, maybe leap of faith or oh. whatever you have to believe in. Uh, but do you think spirituality is important in life? And it has 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 uh, have Aristotelian uh, the Aristotelian way of life uh, brought you any spirituality? Maybe not spirituality in the in the Christian way or a Jewish way or whatever, but in a I think it's spirituality. Sorry, I'm going to go off on a little bit on a tangent. No, no, but spirituality is a little bit it's subjective in some ways because I don't consider myself religious, but there is a weird feeling that you can't seem to describe that everyone, a lot of people seem to yearn for. And especially in their twenties where they're trying to figure out their life. And if they're not religious and they have no guide guidelines. Yeah. I think it's a deeply human yearning. There, If you look at homo sapiens strictly anthropologically, it's one of the defining differences as far as we know between us and other advanced animals or any animals, is, is this yearning for, uh, I mean, let's give it the word, metaphysics. It, it's how do things work beyond what we can actually see with our scientific uh, minds and our empirical senses. Yes, there is that yearning in the human being. Uh, I'm not at all uh, incapable of feeling irrational, sublime tingles when listening to great music looking at great uh, scenery, you know, that, that, that absolutely. Um, but I don't think I am a particularly, as you put it, spiritual creature. I get happiness from really quite concrete ethical situations. Uh, you know, I think they're quite concrete. Now, then other people might describe the tingle I have as spiritual. It could just be a matter of language. But I get very profound sense of, of warmth when you've got a situation where many human beings are together doing something good, right? You know, I, I, I get a real kick. Can you call that spiritual? I don't know what word is. I've had moments like that, of course, with people I love very much, whether my children or, or, or my husband, where you feel a bit translated to another level. Um, but I, I, I'm not, it, it, it's not a goal in my life. My goal is a very practical one to create sense of well-being and happiness and warmth and constructive society building. And yes, I, some people might say they get a, that my kick from that is spiritual. I, I, I actually don't see it like that. I, I see it more as a, a, a trust that Homo sapiens has got, yes, enormous powers to destroy, but also enormous powers to be constructive. And that when like non-kin, and that's the other great gift of humans, and Aristotle's very big on this, but when non-kin, so we're not talking somebody in the same tribe or the same pack of dogs, when somebody from a completely different culture and I look across a crowded bus and laugh at the same thing, or my little white baby uh, smiles at the old black lady, you know, in the street who comes over to pet my little, because we're both mothers, that, those moments make me buzz, yeah. But that isn't exactly off the planet, is it? 
it's a spirituality ingrained in planetary experience yeah and uh so when you were 22 23 and you first started reading aristotle um what did you start doing then and there where you first said you know what i have to uh sorry for my language but get my shit together right and yeah yeah yeah. i was definitely getting my shit together yeah so what did you start doing and uh yeah okay very simple um this is all down actually to one book of the nike and mckeon ethics book three uh the two first things i started doing were one taking decision making extremely seriously and using all of aristotle's advice on how to make an important moral decision because we all i genuinely believe in our current society are not trained to do that and take precipitate decisions based on unscientific non-data emotion passion uh prejudice all the other destructive things that make you decide what to do and those decisions can range from who to vote for down to how to discipline your child right how to confront your husband if you think he's been adulterous, how to deal with a boss who's bullying you. I mean, you know, there's just a million and one different situations. So I started thinking very, very hard about decisions and um, using Aristotle's eight, nine point plan, which I do lay out in one of the chapters. Uh, and the other one though, probably more important, the one that knocked me sideways was the couple of sentences in book three of the Nike and Begin Ethics where he formulates the idea of crime by omission. I later found out, this is very big in Catholicism, I didn't know that, that they came later than Aristotle, obviously, but that he says a human can do far more damage by turning a blind eye when they should act, they should intervene, than they can actually by constructive wrongdoing. And for some reason, that rang such a loud bell with me. So that would be if you can hear screams coming from your house next door, you know, there's a kid there, right? Do you say to yourself, well, it's none of my business. I don't want to be an interfering neighbor. Or do you jolly well go around, bang on the door and say, what's going on? I don't like hearing a child scream. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a decision. Or if you don't want to do that, calling the social workers or, or, or the police or whatever. And I almost immediately began at the end of every day of my life in bed at night or in the mirror while I cleaned my teeth saying, not just have you done any bad things today, but what should you have done that you didn't do? Mm -hmm. So that's omission. And I think that this would, this entails a complete revolution in how we, for example, assess our politicians. All our politicians have to do is keep their noses clean. If they manage never to say anything racist, never to harass anybody sexually, um, never to drop some kind of uh, clangor, we call it in Britain, um, then that's fine. What I want to do is say, given your position of power, what have you done about poverty? Given your position about power, uh, of power wherever you were before, you know, a rector of a university or head of a multinational or a lawyer, you know, what have you done? I want to know the exact CV of good works that you've done. I just I don't want to just know about what you've avoided doing wrong. And I'm afraid 
to hit it straight on the head, I would really say that to the British monarchy. One of the things that, uh, because our Queen is an interesting and, and I think a perfectly good lady, but people just rave about her. And if you actually look, for example, all the charities that she's a patron of are publicly available, and there's hundreds of them. There's hardly any poverty charities. They're almost all private schools and regiments. And I just think if you're in the position of being monarch and you could choose any charity you wanted, (laughs) what would be wrong with a few poverty charities? So I don't think we properly assess people we only assess them on what they've managed to avoid doing rather than what they've actually done. So all the time in my engagements with people, I sort of, I'm, I'm afraid assessing them about what they have or have not done with that power. Mm. It's very obvious, I think, in American culture with, for example, movie stars and pop stars. It is very, very clear that some of them do not use their platform in ways they could. And others do. You know, it becomes really, really clear. Who, who is seriously saying, um, I would say Bruce, Bruce Springsteen is a very good model of that, actually. He's used his platform. Uh, I know, for example, that he sent, he's, he's helped a lot of uh, British trade unions out a lot. With, with, with He's never advertised it, but I happen to know, because I'm in the British Labour Party, that he just sends checks over, right, to help workers when they're on strike and so on. You know, this matters to me. Uh, I have no interest in people who sit on huge wealth and status and never put it on the line for any cause. When they have nothing to lose, they're completely secure. Mm. Right. And <clears throat> how far does that extend in your in your view? For example, uh, a common problem I see in 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 America and and um, was the topic of discussion in past podcasts, where, for example, on a college campus, uh, if say a professor peddles political ideas when it really has no place in that class. And a lot of students sit quietly. Some might agree, um, but there are a few that disagree. And there is a fear, a genuine fear, and that extends into the workplace to say anything, to challenge the professor or to challenge uh, your boss in the future or yeah. or your company because that would be having skin in the game but yeah. i also understand the flip side where because these people don't have status and and wealth that they can you know rely on if they do yeah. get fired um what is their why would they do it Exactly. But Stanley, if, if you listen to what I was just saying, I said precisely the people who are really secure yeah. in their wealth and status. Right. Those are the ones I judge. If they've got absolutely nothing to lose, that you know, they're rich and famous and, and they can live off their current holdings for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And not to use that as a platform is completely different from if you're on some zero hours contract trying to feed your children. Uh, and, and you've got to keep quiet because you, your boss is a tyrant. I mean, absolutely. I, I made that distinction very carefully. I was talking about totally secure people. I put this very much into action in my own life because once I got tenure, and you know, in academia, tenure is this big deal. Once I got tenure, before I got tenure, of course, I kept my mouth shut sometimes. Of course I did. Uh, but that was part of the long game to, to, to get tenure. And since then, I've supported untenured 
younger academics and cleaning staff and security staff and domestic workers at the university on every single occasion I can because nobody can really hurt me, right? So that, that's the difference. Uh, I wouldn't for a minute expect someone in a vulnerable position on the breadline, especially with dependents, to, to step around being a hero. And absolutely not. So don't, don't misunderstand me. No, no, I, I completely understood. But I'm saying for, um, I understand if you don't have a certain status wealth to fall back on. In many ways, I think, for example, American universities in a lot of ways are failing kids because they don't open up that dialogue. Like yeah. they don't let kids freely speak their mind. No. And the reason it, again, later extends to the workplace is because that's the way, you know, people, people Ooh. always think when I get like a tenured position or when I get a, yeah. you know, a certain position in life, then I, I will speak out, but that could, that could take decades you know, but also what is going wrong fear. with our society? We're supposed to be this free society with freedom of speech. And I've watched over the last 20 years actually terror about expressing opinions. In fact, increasingly large walks of life, worse in the USA than in Britain, slightly. Uh, but I think fear is just one of our most common cultural experiences. I know my kids in, in their early 20s, completely insecure, no tenure job in sight, no household mortgage in sight, all the rest of it, live in fear. They're living in fear of, of destitution. And these are middle-class kids. You know, they, they, these, are, these are not kids from um, a, a poor neighbourhood with, with high crime rates. So something has gone really wrong with the truly good principle of freedom of speech at all levels with, without fear. Um, and I think it's getting worse and I think that social media is helping it to get worse people piling in on everybody else um and I'm I'm really worried about it my generation freedom was really everything I watch my kids generation and actually it's safety they don't feel safe I felt safe so I could go around shouting about oh, I wanted to be free they don't even feel safe that they're going to be financially after that the planet is still going to be working you know that there are actually going to be jobs there's there's been in the last 30 years a radical shift in in, in the state of mind of young adults yeah well the reason is because i think we are we're also playing the long game right and you yeah. think what i say now yeah is going to come and bite me in the ass in the future yeah. And that's even more with social media where it's and, th and that's a, that's so concerning because yeah. uh when else are you supposed to make mistakes you exactly. can't go through life without making a mistake of course not. and that's the way you learn but um but there is a fear and the reason people resort to safety is because they go well i don't know if that employer won't hire me that employer won't hire me because um I had I expressed a certain viewpoint politically ten or years 10 ago. Ten years ago, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Like, uh, so it's a I little. I hate that. Yeah, I hate that, and I, I think it. I wouldn't have survived if videos of me expatiating in 1980 were around. Absolutely, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, and, and I feel very, very relieved that that that's how it is. But 
something has gone wrong with our sense of the importance of freedom of expression. It really has. And the um, bizarre thing to me before we... Balance. Oh, sorry, sorry. 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 No, we should probably move on because I can't talk all night. Um, yeah, yes, sorry. I'm talking too much. No, no, don't you apologize. I'm talking too much. Um, what I've, uh, what I liked about your book compared to, so I had, I had a stoic on my podcast. Uh, so Massimo Piliucci. Oh, and- Massimo. <laughs> oh. Huh? He doesn't like me. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> he doesn't know me, but he thinks I'm, I, I'm hard on it on on stoicism, <laughs> which is true. Um, and then I had an Epicurean, uh, yeah. Catherine Wilson, on my podcast. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and both are very interesting philosophies. Yeah. I used to the first one I was introduced to was stoicism, and I liked it for a second, and then they lost me. Epicureanism is interesting, but I don't like the whole "don't get involved in politics" or no, it's a life. big problem, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Don't engage. What I liked about yours is it's maybe it's it just fit my life in some way. I'm like, this is kind of what I want to live my life by. Uh, so what are your how is how are Aristotelian ethics different than Stoicism and Epicureanism? OK, well. The Aristotelian model of the human differs from the Epicurean one, as you've already said very importantly, because Aristotle believes in society, believes in the community, believes in business, believes in trade, believes in social uh, engagement, thinks that people who are gifted actually have a duty to contribute their gifts to the public life one way or another. Um, And he thinks that collective life and the engagement of people, even if they've got huge IQs and they're very good at philosophy, with the granular nitty gritty details of everyday doing and guessing and spending and having kids is crucial. So that's the difference between him and Epicureanism. The difference between Aristotelianism and Stoicism is all down to emotions. Everything's about emotions. Whatever some neo-Stoics say, including ones you may have interviewed, if you actually read the ancient Stoic texts, Authentic stoicism is entirely repressive of emotion and instinct. The entire trick is to, and the words are all very masculine and very violent, to master and dominate and conquer your emotions, your passions, your instincts. All right. So you smile in the face of death. You despise your wife when she cries because you've lost a child. Um, If you feel sexually turned on, instead of thinking about that, what does it mean? Right. You beat yourself until it stops. (laughs) It's, it's, It's not, to my mind, at all compatible with the dominant model of the psyche and, and, and the psychosomatic unity of ourselves that has come up since Freud. And the one that is, is the peripatetic model of the soul, which says that body and mind are not separate, that uh, your intellectual conscious life is, a, is an organic response to your, your bodily life, and that all instincts, passions, and emotions uh, is not a matter of being either good or bad, but they're on a spectrum 
so that take anger for example now a stoic would say that the angry man is temporarily crazy he's irrational and needs to stop it as soon as possible okay <laughs> aristotle says well actually that's not right at all in fact but he was before stoics stoics happened a generation after him he would say to his teacher plato who had also said anger was ridiculous and mad and, and out of control aristotle says well look what about all the occasions when without anger you wouldn't be an effective moral agent Without anger, Martin Luther King would not have led the Selma marches. Without anger, if your kid is bullied at school, you're not going to go to the head teacher and say, I need to know why my kid is coming home from school bruised and crying. Anger, if properly used, is a force for moral good. It stops being that on the other extreme when you're angry out of place at the wrong time with the wrong person and in a bad uh, to a bad extent, to a bad degree. But that is no worse than never having any anger at all sitting on the sofa while you watch your child being beaten up. Yeah. Now, for me, as a very emotional and passionate 20-something, um, this resounded so loudly. I'd been told by Christians who are, it's very similar to Platonism, that Everything to do with the body is bad. Everything to do with the spirit and the mind is. And to find a philosopher who said, actually, no, that's completely wrong. It's fine to be angry. What you need to do is devote an enormous amount of time about thinking, why do I feel angry? Who is actually at fault? And what can I constructively do about with that anger? So this was music to my ears. And this is fundamentally different from all the other ancient schools of philosophy, Stoicism, Epicureanism, Cynicism, Platonism, um, Pyrrhonism, you know, that there are about seven ancient schools of, of philosophy. The only one that says emotion at the right time, in the right place, in the right degree is good and bodies are good. You know, uh, Aristotle thinks sex is great because it can really, really make your ethical relationship with your primary partner, you know, wonderful he thinks eating uh, a desire for delicious food is really good because it will point you to nutritious food right so, so it's about to, it, it's just much more humane and much more modern and much more post-freudian yeah and uh, one of the big themes in your book is uh, about happiness and and what i realized with stoicism is i would read about it it's very interesting but it doesn't make you happy like i <laughs> <laughs> it's just they don't seem like very happy people you know it's and it's not a goal it's not a goal no it's not pneumonia, which is the greek for this state of well-being or felicity that doing good constantly or trying to do good constantly puts you into this optimistic constructive frame of mind it doesn't exist in stoicism there's no goal of of happiness there's, there's goals of living according to reason uh living according to self-control and becoming untouchable by the emotions of the world. I don't want to be untouchable by the emotions of the world. I also think it's extremely gendered. I think that the Stoicism was very much the ideology of the ancient Roman male who never wanted to expose emotional vulnerability. We would probably now say one of society's great problems is that men are not allowed 
to be emotionally vulnerable, which is why there are such high suicide rates amongst men, which is why families fall apart because men can't be openly affectionate, you know, to toward the soppy. Do you have the word soppy? You know, they, they, yeah, they, yeah. they can't sort of express themselves emotionally with tears and affection and hugs and, and, and intimacy. A lot of us would say that that's a huge problem. So I would actually say that stoicism's ideal of masculine behaviour, it, it didn't have an ideal of feminine behaviour. Women just didn't count. They're just sort of breeding machines. I, I think that Aristotelianism, despite certain patriarchal features in it, which are inevitable with any ancient philosophy, uh, is far more appealing to women because it, it says passion, emotion and the body are all utter gifts to be thoroughly enjoyed in a rational way. Mm. One of the interesting things about um, that I read, it was, it was a, I think a little bit of um, you criticizing Aristotle a little bit because of his views on women and all that, which made me think of a interesting, I guess, question for you, because what do you how do you how do you view history should we view history from our current uh moral standards or uh try to apply historical standards and try to understand where they're coming from this 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 extends to topics such as slavery obviously yeah. and, and they should have known better like yeah. 500 years ago obviously i mean we would like to think that but um how would you how do you judge history and historical figures well this is terribly topical as, as, as i'm sure you know there are plenty of people arguing for decolonizing the curriculum and that basically disposing of discarding you know all, all the great authors of the past um i think fundamentally i'm an uh, 18th century radical enlightenment girl Okay, the radical enlightenment is is one that says, look, every idea and development, a bit of progress that humans have ever had, whether scientifically or intellectually, is part of a progress program and needs celebrating, analyzing and understanding. The human project is only uh, in literate terms a few thousand years old, which is true. Uh, and that we don't just chuck out all the babies with all the bathwaters. That's the first thing I would say. The second it is, and I say it very clearly in the book, but that the unique thing about Aristotle when he's uh, talking about, for example, political constitutions or uh, even just personal psyche is that the sort of fetishization of consistency and never changing a mind is hugely problematic. He says both the individual moral agent, so you or me, and the city, the state, so you, the United States of America or the United Kingdom has to be eternally open to revising its views if either new evidence or new argumentation is presented. Mm -hmm. So, and he actually gives examples from political uh, history, like that he says, in the olden days in Greece, we used to buy our wives. And then we then realized that was treating them like cattle and that wouldn't do. And we stopped doing that. Right. We were presented with new evidence and we stopped doing it. The other one, which is interesting in the American situation with the NRA, is he says in the olden days, we used to carry arms in the city state. 
right? We would, wouldn't go to the assembly undefended by a weapon. But we learned that that was to erode trust, okay? And that it was much better for us all to go unarmed to the assembly and have cannot carry arms in the market square and so on. And I, I do find that kind of flesh crawling when you look at the discussions today about armed civilians. So he comes up with these things. And I just know that if I could present him with the now extraordinarily enormous scientific data that all homo sapiens have the same random distribution of intelligence and that there is no genetic gap in intelligence between men and women whatsoever. We do have slightly different brains, the science would say, like women are better at communication, men slightly better at spatial awareness, you know, but, but, but that's interesting, right? It, it, that, that is not a hierarchical uh, relationship, that is a complementary relationship. And uh, he was completely adamant about that. And he would look about, at, for example, the fetishization of the founding fathers with despair, with absolute despair. Of course, they had some good principles in their own time. They worked out actually with remarkable skill. I mean, you know, my admiration for Jefferson, you know, and I'm sure Aristotle would be enormous, but, you know, they got it wrong on slavery and women, excuse me. And uh, they've had to be corrected. Mm -hmm. so, so, so I think we could correct Aristotle. Say right now. Hmm. That's a yeah. That's an interesting. It's point openness of view. to new data or argument. Right. Um, another thing that I guess read about you in my research for this podcast is you've fought for classics to be taught in universities, and you're very well, obviously, adamant on that, and you teach classics. Oh. Um, I, I personally did not receive a classics education. Uh, it's a regret of mine, but it's not it's not really my fault. <laughs> but of course it's not. It, it wasn't taught in school. Uh, but, but you're obviously thirsting for these ideas now. Yeah, for sure. But it's always it's always I find it beneficial when you can read ancient text with a professor who knows the text inside and out and kind yeah. of go and discuss it and, and yeah, I could read it in my house by myself, but it's not the same. Um, can you explain to uh, Americans and maybe to, to Brits as well, why classics are so important and why sh we should teach them in universities? Okay. Uh, okay. So humans have had six extraordinary revolutions. All right. In about 70,000 BC, we started standing upright and talking to each other. That's the cognitive revolution. In about 8,000 BC, we started farming and building cities, right? Agricultural revolution. Skip to the 15th century, we started printing, changed everything, meant that text could go all over the world. You know, ideology can go all over the world, unlimited. Industrial revolution changed everything. And we're now living the digital re revolution, which is changing the way we relate. What I've skipped over is the thousand years between about 700 BC and about three, 400 AD, where everything about our intellects was created. 
absolutely everything. Every discipline we study at university, uh, from natural science to philosophy to logic to history to geography to theatre to literature to aesthetics to psychology, um, every genre that we read, whether it's biography or fiction or oratory, the ferment of the Greek intellectual revolution created the insides of our heads. Also, some of the imaginative stories that still fuel us on so, so very far, like, like the Odyssey and Aesop's fables. So to my mind, if you get through school without knowing anything about the thousand years that created the human intellect, your education has failed you, right? Most kids do know a little bit about the Industrial Revolution printing Gutenberg when they leave school. But if they don't know when the idea of democracy was invented and they don't know when theatre was invented and they don't know whether the very concept of epistemology, which sounds like a long word, but simply means the philosophy of knowledge. How do we know what we know and how do we know that it's true? when all of these ideas were first evolved without gods interfering, you know, the rational, then we, we have completely failed to educate kids and give them the sort of cultural literacy that will ground them in what it is to be truly a human. I passionately believe this. And uh, currently I'm campaigning to get some compulsory, not Latin or Greek, but some compulsory study of just classical civilization, like, politics and philosophy in, and history into every state school in the land. And we're, we're doing very well. People are uh, coming around to it. So I wouldn't have asked you to do any majoring in it at high school or anything. I'd have said, give me a lad of 13. Let me have him for an hour a week for two years. And he'll know who Pericles was. He'll know who Julius Caesar was. He'll know what the Parthenon is. He'll know what tragedy is. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. That's can, that, can you bring that to the States by any chance? That's can exactly you... what, uh, and that should be alongside citizenship skills Yeah. and uh, basic, you know, whatever they call it, personal relationships, where, you know, the essential skills. What it is to be a human was pretty much invented in that thousand years by the Greeks and Romans. Right. It would be, it would be amazing if you can bring that to the, to the United States, because we desperately need it as well. Well, well, when you're of, rich, rich and famous broadcaster, which I have no doubt you will be, you, you get me over to give some big lecture and I'll do it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have the same feeling. Uh, as I mentioned, one of my majors was history, and, and I have the same feeling about history where yeah. we don't teach history well no. at all. And when I met people that are uh, that find it boring, I was like, you just didn't have the right teachers. Because, you really did not. Because and it's my old, impossible. My daughter... It's nearly 22. She's at London University and she's majoring in modern history. And she, she just gets so frustrated with people who don't want to know, you know, that we didn't have the Race Relations Act till a certain year or we didn't have a abortion till a certain year. I mean, she, she, she likes modern history, but she finds the idea that people don't even care yeah. that, about where their rights came from. <laughs> yeah, I, th I, I think that's... It's, it, it's baffling and it's also it's it's scary in some ways because you have a society that doesn't know anything about it's that's why i get very frustrated when people talk about 
historical figures in the United States because most people that talk about them don't know the full history. And yeah. it's, it's, it's a failure of our education system because yes. even with, in my school, we had uh, people, we had such specific courses like 14th century Italy or something like that, but, but there was no general survey course on the history no. of Italy. How are you supposed to just know everything that came before and what came after? Or, or even know why on earth it might matter. Yeah, exactly. And why might why might it matter? There, there are huge yeah, erosions. I, I want to, just yeah. want people to know that every time they use the word democratic, there is a very specific history of precisely two thousand five hundred years <laughs> duration where it's mentioned very specific things and, and are throwing around this term as though it's a universal, not something incredibly short lived that could easily be taken away. You know. Yeah. Um, obviously in the interest of time, because we have a huge time difference. Um, I like to finish off every podcast with two questions. Oh, one is, uh, what, what gives you hope for society, <laughs> for society in general, and maybe your country or, uh, the United States state of affairs. And the last one is what are five books on any topic that you would recommend to anyone? Goodness me. Well, the first one's easy, and that is simply the young people I engage with all the time. I am so overwhelmingly impressed, given especially the, the dark COVID times, with the resilience, maturity, uh, self-control, uh, selflessness, and constructive responses, especially in terms of how people, you know, how to use the internet to try and hang on to a sense of community. The way I have seen young people behave has moved me so much that I'm far more optimistically weirdly than I was 18 months ago. I, I really think the young people, and these include, of course, all my own undergraduates, but their response to a situation that I have never, ever had to endure in, in, in my young adulthood, uh, I think you guys are far more responsible thinking and increasingly actually sort of anti-capitalist and pro-green and emotionally sophisticated. You know, I think an awful lot of the models of just get rich quick and, 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 and stuff the environment, stuff the future. These are not the dominant ideology now of young people. You know, I think we're creating the sensible humans of the future. I think it's wonderful. All right. So that gives me hope. You give me hope. My daughters <laughs> give me hope. My undergraduates give me hope. Uh, five books. Okay, so hmm. it could be fiction or nonfiction. Let me just presuppose anything. Okay, so you can give more than five as well. Sorry. <laughs> Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment. Um, this is actually quite difficult. The Odyssey. Obviously, The Odyssey. Das Kapital, <laughs> 1K marks. Yeah. <laughs> um, Middle March by George Eliot. It's all very Western, isn't it? Um, and the complete works of Aristotle. Beautiful. And, and, and your book? Well, uh, if you can't <laughs> be bothered to read the complete works of Aristotle, you can get the summary in my book, yeah. Awesome. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and speaking with me. Um, well, thank you. I, I found your questions unusual. 
and all the better for that. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Good night.